Well, if you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, as we continue this series through uh, this great chapter, I forgot something that I'm going to need. All right, Romans chapter 8. Now, this morning I want to read for you verses 12 through 17 of Romans chapter 8. And if you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's inspired and unerring and life-giving word. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, this is God's word, so let's give it our full attention. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now, O Lord, we ask that you would bless the preaching of your holy word, that by your spirit you would commit it to our hearts, and that it would produce a harvest of righteousness in your people for your glory. We pray through Christ. Amen. You may have a seat. It seems that every sentence and every clause and pretty much every word of Romans chapter 8 is dense with truth that we could easily justify spending far more time than the weeks that we've planned on committing to it. And this is certainly true for verses 12 through 17 that we just read. The late, great Martin Lloyd-Jones of uh, the 20th century, that great Welsh preacher from London who preached for so many years at the Westminster Chapel. In his famous series on Romans, he preached 366 sermons. That's a lot. On verses 12 through 17, I looked it up this week. Verses 12 through 17 of chapter 8, he preached 27 sermons. I'm going to preach 38. No, not really. But, I mean, no mere mortals can do that. And I'm a mere mortal, so we're just going with what we've got. And, and, and these verses, 12 through 17, are teeming with comforting truth. The emphasis on the doctrine of adoption by the Father, in the Son, through the Holy Spirit. In these words, we are provided with among the most comforting words in the entire Bible. They tell us, in one way or another, about the history of mankind. Because if you want to understand the history of mankind, you have to understand this. That the history of mankind tells this story. It's the story of God's grace bringing once alienated sinners who were his enemy into close personal fellowship such that he looks upon them now as sons and daughters. That's the story that God tells about his people in history. 
that in His grace, God has restored what Adam lost, namely, sonship to God the Father. In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle writes, How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. It's as though the Apostle is exclaiming there something that he is very jealous that we understand in all of its depths. He's saying, can you see it? Can you see how great, can you see how deep and profound the love that the Father has lavished on us, poured out upon us in deep measure? Are you able to conceive a love so lavish that people who were once dead in their sins, haters of God, are now the children of God, dearly loved. Listen to this from J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. Quote, You sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls your worship and prayer and the whole outlook on life, it means that you don't understand Christianity very well at all. Now, I mentioned just a moment ago Lloyd-Jones' 27 sermons on just these verses. And I'm not going to do that. But it's not going to be one sermon either. And I didn't realize that until Friday evening. And I had to call an audible, which is okay. That happens every once in a while. So this morning, we're going to focus on verses 12 through 14. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll cover verses 15 through 17. But all ultimately under the banner of what does it mean to be adopted sons and daughters of God? What are the blessings that accrue to us because God has made us by his grace in Christ his sons and daughters? And if you have one of those sermon guides, we'll be looking at the first two points today. And first of all, we can say this, that we are now, by by virtue of having been adopted by God, we are now free from the power of sin and death. Having established that Christians have received life in its fullest dimensions, that is salvation life, eternal life. Resurrection life, having established that that is our inheritance, Paul now proceeds with this emphatic, there, verse 12, look at it, so then, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. As we've seen so often, the term brothers is directed to the whole church, not just men. This is familial language extended to the whole covenant community, the whole church. This was a common way to address the whole family. Brothers, we would say, brothers and sisters. And since the warmth and the urgency in such an address from Paul, he's not speaking to some disembodied crowd. He's writing to family here. He's writing to those to whom he is united in Christ And it's like Paul is taking us by the shoulders and he's saying, listen, family, I need you to hear this. This is pressing. This is important. And do you see that first clause? We are debtors, not to the flesh. 
What an interesting and instructive way to refer to sin and sinning. We are debtors not to the flesh. When we sin, Paul says, it's as though we believe we're obligated in some way to sin. That we owe the flesh something, some measure of loyalty. Now follow Paul's reasoning here. The reason why when a Christian sins, it looks as though he or she thinks that they are a debtor to sin or that they're obligated to sin, here's why it looks that way. Because, as we've already seen here, if we've been tracking in Romans 8, Christ has broken the power of sin over us. It doesn't mean we're not still going to struggle, because we are. We are still fallen people in a fallen world, redeemed gloriously, but still fallen in a fallen world. We will still struggle with temptation. We will still fight against sin. Paul unfolds this for us in the previous chapter, in chapter 7. We still struggle against sin. What has changed, though, in Christ is glorious. Because what has changed is that whereas we once were enslaved by sin, we are now no longer enslaved to sin. In other words, it is not a foregone conclusion that you're going to spend the rest of this day in sin if you're a Christian. Because you don't have to. The power of sin has been... What did we just sing? My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is present reality for the Christian. The dungeon has been flamed with light. We have been released from the overruling power of sin. And now we live under the influence and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. That means today, when a temptation comes, you are, because of God's grace, able to say no. Because you have a new heart. You have new desires. Whereas once you did not care about God, now you actually have a desire, a God-given desire to glorify Him, to please Him. That's His grace. So, when we who have been freed from sin still sin, we're acting like we owe sin something. Because we aren't obligated to sin, but we still did. And Paul is saying, it's like you're living under an obligation to sin. It would be like this. It would be like you had a wealthy benefactor who paid off your entire mortgage. And then, after having your entire mortgage paid off by the wealthy benefactor, you still keep insisting on paying every month. Not the benefactor who paid your debt, who doesn't want your payment, by the way, but you still keep trying to send the payment to the original holder of your debt. That's what this is like when a Christian sins and no one would do that and yet every time a christian sins it is as though we look upon the cross we understand that full payment has been made by christ to both pay for the penalty of our sin and cancel the power of sin and yet we still say yes but i still owe something not to christ but to the sin he canceled Now, I want you to look at the language there. Can you stare at verse 12 for a second? As much as you want to stare at me, stare at verse 12 for just a second. 
Notice the language Paul uses. So then, family, listen, we are debtors, not to the flesh. But what's that first clause? We are debtors. He's not saying we aren't debtors to anything. We are debtors, but we're not debtors to the flesh. We're not debtors to sin. Some have pushed back against that, believing that it's not compatible with being adopted children of the Father to talk about debt or obligation or duty at all from Christians. And if you believe that, then you're going to have some real problems with the Bible. Because you see, the Bible does not just say one thing about what it means to be a Christian. It says a lot of things about what it means to be a Christian. Think about if you have a diamond ring, and just, I I, I think the average I saw, because this is one of the things I looked at, um, the average cut of the average diamond in an engagement ring has something like 37 or 40 facets just on the crown, just on the top. You know, you think, how do you fit all of that on such a tiny diamond, right? Well, they do, and if you think about it in terms of the Christian life, the Christian life, God has revealed it to us as this multifaceted thing. None of the facets contradicting each other, but all working together in harmony to produce something that's brilliant, beautiful, where light is refracted and turned into something even more glorious. And so so the Bible doesn't just say one thing. The Bible doesn't sing just one note about the Christian life, but gives us a full, complete, harmonious symphony. And among the things we see about the Christian life in the Scriptures is that we are obliged to render obedience to our God. See, Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. God is our gracious Redeemer and our King. Now, this is not an obligation to pay Him back so that we can somehow even the scales so that we can kind of have some leverage on Him. You understand that, right? It's the obligation that says to the one who saved your life and rescued your soul and gave you eternal life at the expense of his own life, it's the obligation that says, I owe you everything. That we are co-heirs with Christ does not in any way diminish the fact that our brother is also our king. And Paul can say this, he can refer to us as being debtors to walk with our Lord and not in the flesh, he can say that because sin's rule over us has been broken. The reason he can talk to us about living in harmony with our obligations to our King, the reason he can talk like that is precisely because by his grace he's given us new hearts and renewed minds and brand new affections. It's precisely, therefore, because of God's free grace lavished on us that Paul can actually talk to us as new creations in Christ who are truly able to live unto Christ and not as though we are debtors to sin. So we are debtors, not to the flesh, to sin in order to obey its commands, but we are liberated debtors, free to follow the Lord of life. 
Do you see there verse 13? For, he's continuing his logic. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Now Paul has already stated that life in the flesh brings death. Ultimately, Paul has in mind the spiritual death that brings that, that sin brings about, but also the physical death as well. Uh, Romans chapter 6, what does he tell us? For the wages of sin is death. And he means that death in its full comprehensive sense. Physical death, and ultimately, and most tragically, spiritual death. And then you have the next clause. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. Now stop right there for a moment. When he says, put to death the deeds of the body, I want you to zero in on that. Uh, John Owen, the great 17th century Puritan theologian, calls our attention to what he says is both the uncertainty and the certainty of what Paul is writing there. And Owen's reasoning is this. He says, if you look at that first preposition, you know, but if, it implies the possibility that that, that among those who are hearing these words, some of them will choose to disregard it. Some who are hearing this will insist on continuing to live according to the flesh rather than putting it to death. So Paul is throwing out that uncertainty. There is an uncertainty because some of you will not heed the apostles' words here. But he says, but here's the certainty. If, if you will do this, then you will live. And there's no uncertainty about that. There is complete, 100% certainty about that. The scriptures do not offer assurance to those who claim to be Christ while orienting their lives entirely around sin. The scripture has no words of comfort there. But the same scriptures offer rock-solid eternal assurance for those who truly believe and in whom that genuine belief is proven by the fact that they are putting sin to death. And he says this, if you will live by the Spirit, you will live. Well, what is it that we're supposed to do? If you'll do this, Paul says, if you'll put to death the deeds of the body. Now, the deeds of the body here, that is just another way to refer to sin. And what Paul is describing here is what an earlier generation of Christians would call the mortification of sin. That Christians are to mortify, that is to kill sin. What's the old saying? Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. One of the great books of Christian spirituality from the Reformed tradition is by John Owen, who I just mentioned, and it's entitled On the Mortification of Sin. And you ought to read it. I commend it to you. Now, Owen's not easy to read. Hear me. He's not easy to read, but he's worth the effort. But you know, before we do that, before we go to Owen, how about we make sure we're giving the Apostle Paul his due? And Paul has a lot to tell us about killing sin. Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh, he writes. In other words, starve it to death. Colossians 3, 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Galatians 2, 20, for I have been crucified with Christ, and therefore I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Galatians 5.24, 
Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We could go on and on from Paul. The bottom line is, is if, we, if we live by the Spirit, we will go about putting sin to death. The verb translated put to death there was typically used in a forensic way to refer to those who were being led to their execution. So we are to act against our sin with extreme prejudice. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which we say we love, right? We love everything Jesus says, right? Well, Jesus, as is typical, says things in a harsher way than even the Apostle Paul said it. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, embracing language. I mean, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, knock it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, some of you are going, Todd, I have a young kid here. Make sure they know that they're not actually supposed to do that. I hope we understand that Jesus is not causing us to, is not actually calling us to actually mutilate our bodies. Okay. But let's be sure we let the shock of those words to rest upon us with the weight that they're supposed to. Why would Jesus say something so hard as that? Because he knows what sin does. Think about what sin costs. Think about it. If you think about the cost of sin, you must think about the cross. And in the cross, we see our Savior canceling our debt at the cost of His own precious life. In the cross, we see the Heavenly Father sparing not His own Son, but offering up for us all because of the cost of sin. And so when our sin, when temptation comes along to us and entices us with all of its false promises, here's what we need to do. At that very moment, we need to take it by the scruff of its neck, aim its face at the cross, and say, look what you cost. And see how eager you are to indulge in in that moment. What has your sin ever done for you, Christian? What blessing has sin ever given to you? What outburst of anger or lust indulged or ethical corner clipped off, what has that ever done to build your life and make you better and a more honorable person or give you life and peace? What joy has ever been added to your life constructively because of sin? No wonder Paul in Romans 7, is utterly dismayed over the fact that he still finds himself sinning to the point where he says, who will save me from this body of death? And of course, the answer is the same answer every time. Jesus Christ is who? So again, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And again, this is just as much about God's saving grace as everything else is. It's a marvelous promise. It's summed up in that little Greek verb, zeseste. You will live life. By putting sin to death, we experience here and now the life that the Spirit gives. Sin less, live more. I'm not saying sin less, live longer, because that doesn't always work that way. Anybody who promises you that is lying. But we can say, sin less, live more. 
sin more, live less. There is a certainty in this case. The Spirit of God is life. The flesh with all of its sin is death, and that's just truth. And that truth doesn't hang out there in space. It presses us to action, doesn't it? I mean, if, if the Apostle Paul is saying, sin will lead you into death, walking by the Spirit will lead you into life, he's not just saying, isn't that an interesting concept to think about? There is an implied command there, isn't it? There is an implied plea. So therefore, don't live by sin. Live by the Spirit. Look to Christ. Obey Him. Follow Him. That's the inescapable call that is in Paul's words here. Kill sin. Choose life instead. Flee to Christ. And I just want to, I just want to point this out again because I think John Owen is really helpful here. Because one of the things that Owen points out is that even though there is clear action being called for here from Paul, he is still speaking within the realm of promise, within the realm of grace, if you like. Because at the end of the day, all of our labors to kill sin are means that God has given us. And he's given us the means to kill sin just as much as he has given us by his grace the end result, which is life. At no point is God saying... In the flesh you can accomplish this. And if you do this well enough on your own, then I'll do my part. All of it, and Owen is so helpful, all of it ultimately comes from from, from grace. In as much as you make efforts to kill sin, ultimately the engine that drives that is the grace of God. You know, when we sin, we cannot say in that moment. And as I think about motives here, as I think about How can we be more and more motivated to put sin to death? I I think about this. When we sin, we can't say, so I'm going to do this thing, or I'm going to react this way, or I'm going to follow this path, and during that period of time, I'm just going to set Jesus aside. I'm going to put the Holy Spirit over here while I indulge my lust, or give vent to my anger, or betray my spouse, or cheat on that test, or lie about my neighbor. I'll just, I'll just set Jesus aside. I'll step outside of my Christian self for a while, make sure the Holy Spirit can cover his eyes, and then I'll go do this thing. We can't do that. A thought that occurs to me more and more is this. I, 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 am, a, I am a pastor all the time. I never stop being a pastor. And this is a realization that God has used towards my sanctification, that I'm a pastor all the time. Every minute, every day, I'm a pastor. And as a pastor, I am accountable to the Lord in a way that is especially sobering. The scriptures tell me that I'm going to incur a stricter judgment before the Lord one day. And so I can't say, well, when I'm driving around other people who aren't good drivers, I'm not a pastor at that moment. Or when I'm in Costco... And it's clear these people, all of these other people need to learn how to properly maneuver their cart through that store. I'm not a pastor at that point, so I can think what I want to think. And the expression on my face can be not Christian. Or when I'm spending money. Or when, when I allow my mind to drift in a particular position. I can't say, well, I'm not a pastor in those moments. Because it's not true. 
And I've, and I've learned more and more to consider every day that when I sin, I do so as a man who is accountable to the Lord in a unique way, but also accountable to you, every single one of you in an unique way. And, and that's sobering to me. Like I can't say, if I'm sinning over here, that's none of your business. It actually is your business. And that tr- it gives me some fear and trembling when I say that because I'm afraid that some of you are going to start showing up at my house unannounced. Um, <laughs> But you know what I mean? I, I can't say at any point, at any day, I'm, well, I'm not acting as a pastor here because that's what I am. And because of that, I have a unique measure of accountability both to the Lord and to every single person who is here. Well, think about this. If that's true of me being a pastor, how true is that about each of us who are a Christian? Consider what Paul has been teaching us here in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us that the risen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Every one of you who call yourself a Christian, consider how sobering it is that you are, as Paul would tell the church in Corinth, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Or, or as he asks, he asks this question to the Corinthian church, Paul says to these, to these men and women, these former pagans who still struggled with pulling some of their old pagan sin back into the present. And and Paul would have to correct them. And at one point he asks them this in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer within it? May it never be. You'll know you're a child of God when your hatred for sin increases. When your liberty from sin grows. And this leads to this next and final point for this morning, and it's this. We live under the Spirit's leadership. We live as a part of your adoption, as a blessing of our adoption. We live under the Spirit's leadership. What does verse 14 say? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, that term sons, as we're going to see next week, is a title of status. It's not meant to be only male Christians are considered children of God. You understand that. But at that time particular and in that culture, it was the son, particularly the oldest son, who held the place of greatest status in his father's household. And and what the the remarkable grace of, of adoption does is that every Christian... Rich or poor, slave or free, male or female, is a, quote, son of God. You have the status of the son. You have the status. You have the highest status. That's what adoption by the Father through Christ in the Holy Spirit has done for you. And he says, if you're a son of God, if you, if you are adopted by the Father, then you will be led by the Spirit. And here's what, here's what I think Paul is getting at. Because remember, context, 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 right? Paul is not just referring to the ways that the Spirit might guide us in daily decisions. We can, we can get insight on that from other portions of Scripture. But actually, Paul is speaking about something pinpoint with pinpoint specificity here. Because it's tied directly to verse 13. Here's Paul's reasoning. The leading of the Holy Spirit means that he is carrying through on the point he made in verse 13. For if you live 
According to the flesh you will die, but if by the Holy Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for or because all those who are led by this Spirit in this way, if you're led this way by the Holy Spirit, you are the sons of God. In this sense, the leading of the Holy Spirit means to have the the direction of your life as a whole determined by the Spirit. And He will lead you out of sin and towards life. That's what the Holy Spirit will do. If you are a child of God by faith in Jesus, then you will experience the leading of the Holy Spirit leading you away from sin and towards life. That's what the Holy Spirit will be doing in you. So we don't become sons of God by following the Spirit. Rather, those who are sons of God, sons and daughters of God by faith, have their lives led by the Spirit away from sin and towards holiness. And we labor for this. You know, Paul, the the great apostle of free grace, said, I train myself for this. I wear myself out pushing towards this. We are debtors to grace. We are obligated to our Lord. But we're obligated to the Lord who laid down His life for us. We're obligated to walk in a way that is recognizable by our Father. In the living room of our house, I have a black and white photo that I took. And it's framed because it's a really cool picture. And it's a picture of my two sons when they were in third and fifth grade. And it's there in our living room, framed. And I remember it. I remember it because it was right after we had moved to Philadelphia near the end of 2009. And we'd taken a trip into the city that day to see some of the sights. And at one point, Karen and I were walking behind our two sons, third and fifth grade, And I snapped a picture of them from behind because one of the things you want to do when you're in downtown Philadelphia is let your two young sons run way ahead in front of you. Um, They weren't that far ahead. But I took a picture of them. And I've always loved that picture. And how about this? I'll post it today on Facebook, all right? And I can't explain why I love the picture so much other than the fact that Even though I don't see their faces, I recognize them immediately. Yes, I recognize their clothing. But even in that snapshot, I recognize their walk. Because like all of us, my sons have a a way of walking that has its own little features. And I recognize even in that picture, the walk of my boys. It's captured to a degree in that photo. Well, there is a walk... There's a family way of walking. There's a family gate which belongs to the children of God. To the extent, I think, that our Father recognizes the unique way in which His children walk. There's a walking that belongs to the children of God. There's a walk that belongs to the sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And the question becomes then, how are you walking? How are you living? How are you walking? Does your walk show all the signs that you belong to the Father? Does He look upon your walk and say, Ah, I'd recognize her anywhere. That you are led by the Spirit of God, that you are putting sin to death. Does your walk 
say that. Let's do this. When we walk out of this place today, let's keep reminding ourselves, I am a predestined, chosen, elected, saved, redeemed, sanctified, will be glorified, deeply loved child of my heavenly Father. My sins were nailed to the cross with my bleeding Savior and I don't owe sin a blasted thing. And when it slithers up to you, when the temptation comes along and sings its siren song of temptation, you take it by the neck and you point it to the cross and you say, there's my sin. And there's my Savior. Talk to Him. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, we ask that You would bless us now so that Your Word, Your truth, Your grace, Your mercy would take root in our hearts. And that we'd walk in a way that looks like you. We'd walk in a way that the family recognizes. We'd walk in a way that our Father recognizes. Let it be, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. We pray through Christ the Lord. Amen.